Holy Spirit. Amen. We've reached that point in our preaching where we are beginning to say the anaphora. Last week we looked at, children, we looked at that part, oldest part of the divine liturgy that begins the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. And we start with, and lift up your spirits, we lift them up to our, lift up our hearts, we lift them up into the Lord, let us give thanks to the Lord. And the people of God say it is meet and right to worship the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, Trinity one in essence and undivided. I'm going to look in a little more detail at the start of this institution narrative, but place it in the context of what we're celebrating today. A little early, we're celebrating the presentation of the Mother of God in the temple, Theotokos, into the temple, hence the blue vestments. And we're also learning more about the divine liturgy, so our holy table is here, right in the middle of the church, only temporarily, just for one week, so that we can see what is going on. And each year when we do this, I always have the fight within myself. Should I be doing this? Should we move the holy table? How are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure that you know what is going on? And yet, break tradition to do so. And then, as I was praying this morning, <coughs> fighting again with myself, I was reminded of the heresy of the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a people who picked up bits of religions from all the way around the world. And they had lots of very complex theories and theologies and paranoias even. But one thing that was quite common with all these different groups, which is why they're called the Gnostics, is they had a knowledge. They had a word of knowledge. They knew something that nobody else knew. And it was secret. And if you were one of the elect group, if you were inside the group, then you would know what that knowledge is and you would be better than anybody else. And there's something in Christianity that wipes all that away. That the light, the illumination of the world, God becomes visible, manifest to everyone. And there is sometimes a tendency towards gnosis or Gnosticism even within Christianity. I said just at the start of the Divine Liturgy, in the earliest tradition of the Church, there was really no such thing as an iconostas. There was a barrier of some description, maybe a two or three feet tall, as a kind of crowd control, as the people of God gathered more closely, and I'm waving towards you as if to say, come on, let's act like as if we're Middle Easterns and crowd closer. Let's stop being so British here and trying to squeeze against the back wall. The purpose of the iconostas, the purpose of this barrier, was just to make some space for the clergy. And then, as the tradition of using icons directly within the worship of the church, not just frescoes on the wall, but as portable icon, uh, items, where there was a need to put them, to be put somewhere. Somewhere still, stasis, an iconostasis, is literally just a place where icons are stood, and they're fixed. And 
the way I think of it is that people started becoming, icons became very popular, more and more people brought icons to church, and you can't just pile them in a cupboard somewhere, you've got to put them out, because parishioners have paid for these, and they want to have their icons visible. And therefore, iconostas grew and grew and grew, as more and more of these icons were trying to find a home. And therefore, by the 16th, 17th century, we have iconostases that are hundreds of feet tall, taller than our building, let alone our church room. And from that iconostas growing and growing and becoming more blocked off, there becomes a little problem of a gnosis that creeps in, a Gnosticism that creeps in, that somehow what we need to do as clergy is to protect the mystery, protect God sometimes. We do have clergy who seem to think it's their responsibility to protect God from his people. But to protect the mystery means that what we should do is have ever thicker curtains, ever bigger doors to hide, and that nothing that's inside the sanctuary should come out, should be not even looked upon by a people, and the things, the actions of the divine liturgy that happen behind that iconostas should never be looked upon by ordinary people. And you can see that there's a Gnosticism in that, a sense in which we, who are wearing the vestments, have the secret, and you are not one of the elect group, and we must be very careful very careful that we do not fall into Gnosticism, but we make everything manifest, everything visible. That doesn't destroy the mystery, because the mystery is not secret. The mystery is not silent. The mystery is not still. But the mystery is dynamic and joyful and moves <coughs> and walks among his people, because the mystery is God, Christ Jesus. That is who the mystery is, not hidden away but made visible to all people. In the epistle, we hear Paul writing to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people, reminding them of how the divine liturgy came about. Christ has not entered into the holy places made... Am I reading the right one here? No, I'm not. Hebrews 9. Thank you very much. The reading for the uh, office of the Holy Theotokos. Brothers and sisters, the first covenant, the Old Testament, the first covenant of divine service, had laws, ordinances of divine service, and a worldly sanctuary. The sanctuary was carried into the world. There was a tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle was this candlestick and the table. I invite you to look upon the holy table in front of you, and notice that there is a sanctuary, there is a small box called a tabernacle, and on it, or with it, is a candlestick, on the table, and there is inside there what we might say continue, continue to think of as being the showbread. It is this reserved sacrament. And then the second veil. We can think of the box, the tabernacle itself, as being the first <coughs> veil. And then the second veil, the tabernacle, which is the holy of ho holiest of hol all, had a golden censer <coughs> and an ark of a covenant overlaid round with gold. And there was a golden pot that had bread in it, the manna. And Aaron's rod that had budded. Now, we don't have a bishop's staff here, but when you look very closely at a bishop's staff, you'll notice that it is a rod that has budded. It has leaves and it has three snakes 
that twirl around the buds, and the table of the covenant, and over it the cherubim of glory. Now, if we had managed to get this iconostas and all the panels in exactly in the right place, you'll see that there is a panel that should sit just above the iconostas, which is the Holy Spirit hovering over creation. And in many cases, you'll find little cherubim and seraphim hanging over the holy table. But if you look behind the holy table, where the bishop's chair is, you'll see those things that have wings but no faces. Those are the cherubim and seraphim flying about and worshipping God. And in some traditions, there's a baldachino, which is the, uh, a complete... Uh, covering that hangs over the holy table itself under which all of the divine services are served these things were ordained and the priest went first into the tabernacle accomplishing the service of god then second went the high priest alone every year not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people this is the first covenant the second and final covenant of god of course is christ jesus himself he is not only the tabernacle but he is also the gift when we celebrate today a little early the presentation of the theotokos in the temple we are still remembering that idea of the gift because joachim and anna had no children and they were blessed with a child mary and their gift was to offer that which they had been given as a gift in the first place. They offered young Mary into the holy tabernacle, into the temple, in the service of the temple. And the same as we see in the gospel, when we are offered gifts, the rich man had ground that brought forth plenty of fruit. First, he has been given the ground. How did he get that ground? It's not his naturally. He must have taken it from someone or someone gave it to him. But he has plenty of land and it brings forth fruit, <coughs> lots of fruit. And he says to himself, I don't have any room for all this fruit. I've got more fruit than I can put in my home, in my barns. What shall I do? And he says to himself, I'll pull down my barns and build even bigger barns. And then I'll be happy. And I will be able to eat, drink and be merry my soul will be at rest, at ease. But God says to him, Fool, tonight your soul is required of you. What then is all this good stuff good for? If you are not rich towards God. And then he cries out, Jesus cries out, Those that have ears, hear. Let them hear. Of course, everyone has ears. We can listen. But do we actually hear the word of the Lord. Do we hear God, Jesus Christ, speaking this to us? We may not have lots of land. We may not have fruit, plenteous fruit. We may live on tiny amounts of money. But we have been offered a gift beyond all price, a gift beyond all value. And that is eternal life. And that is the opportunity to know Jesus Christ, to know God and to rest at ease with him. When we come to the Divine Liturgy, we come to share that gift, not to build up ever bigger barns, 
to hide our treasure in, but to offer our treasure, to make it visible in our lives. Not that we should even build a bigger church just because we're busy and we can't squeeze you all in. I don't care for that. I care that we share the gospel. And in that gospel, the good news, we come, every time we come to the Divine Liturgy, we are bringing back that gift that has already been given to us. And we say in the institution narrative, it is right and meet to hymn you, to bless you, to praise you, to give thanks to you, to worship you in every place of your dominion, every place that you are a king of. We say to God this, you are God ineffable, inconceivable, invisible, incomprehensible, unknowable, without boundary, without being controlled by anybody, knowing all things and loving all people and all things ever existing and eternally the same. We are making statements of doctrine here, not just praising God, but we are telling the people of God whom we worship. Not a God that changes, not a God that changes his mind, not a God that was created, a created being, but a God that exists before all time and all space. Has never changed, and never will change, and yet, you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. You it was who brought us from nothing into being, created us not from something else, not from a Big Bang, but created the Big Bang itself, created everything from no thing and not even from nothing. And we have been created from nothing into being. And when we fell away, not that God cast us out but when we fell, us, fell away, when we decided to do the selfish thing and do our thing and to be ourselves and true to ourselves and not true to God, when we had fallen away, what does God do? He doesn't reject us, but raises up us again and doesn't stop to do all things until you had brought us up to heaven and granted us your kingdom which is to come. Not a God that rejects and hates and judges, but a God that chases us and pursues us in love and raises us up to all good things and gives us not just his barns full of plenteousness, but all of his kingdom that is to come. When we come to church with our struggles, with the things that are going wrong in our lives, the things that we hate and the things that exhaust us, we still come and give thanks, not for the little things that are horrible in our lives or the big things that are horrible in our lives, not even for the little things that are good in our lives. We don't come to church and say, thank you, God, for helping me get an A grade in maths. God didn't get help me get an A grade in maths, by the way. Only ever a C grade. Even God can't manage. Well, actually, God could manage that if I actually listened to God, but I'm not very good at that. The maths or the listening to God? Both the maths and the listening to God. All these things, even the maths, all of these things we give thanks to you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. We don't just thank God the Father, but we thank God the Son and God the Holy Spirit because we are avowedly Trinitarian. 
for all the good things that have been done for us, known or unknown, <coughs> whether hidden or made visible. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges for us as Christians, is not just to thank God when things are going well, but to thank God when he is still acting in our lives, still suffering alongside us when we are suffering too. We thank you also for this liturgy, this work of the common people, or common work of the people, however you want to put it, which you have been pleased to accept from our hands, the gift that he has given to us. He joyfully receives that gift back. It will be Christmas soon. I wonder how many of us will be totally enjoyed, overjoyed at our children giving our presents back to us. I suspect we might go, well, that's a bit odd. Do you not like my gift? You're giving it back. Or if our children took our gift from us from Christmas and said, thank you very much, Mum and Dad, I'm now going to give this gift to somebody else. What's the matter? Do you not like it? It appears somewhere else in somebody else's gift box. This is a bit peculiar. And yet we have a God who has given us the gift of eternal life, the gift of joy, the gift of knowing him. And what does he do when we give it away and show it to somebody else? He rejoices. What does he do when we come back and offer that gift back to him? He rejoices. He has been pleased to accept this gift from our hands. Even though there stand about you thousands of archangels and tens of thousands of angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, soaring upon, upon their wings, singing and crying and shouting without ceasing the triumphal hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, one of those earliest hymns that is common to almost all of the divine liturgies, even in the Reformed tradition. With these blessed powers, O Master, the priest continues praying on behalf of all of these. With these blessed powers, the power is not our strength, but these, the, the word powers with a capital P refers to the cherubim and angels and the archangels and the seraphim, the archangel Michael, all the powers of heaven, all the energies, we might say, of God. With these angels, O Master, who loves mankind, we also cry aloud and say, Holy are you and all holy, you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. Holy are you and all holy. Remember I spoke last week about the linguistic structure of the anaphora, the repeating of a refrain to reinforce it in our minds. Holy are you, O God, and holy you and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. Holy are you and all holy, and magnificent is your glory, who has so loved the world, so loved the world, so loved his creation, that he gave his only begotten Son. He didn't destroy his only Son. He didn't demand his only Son to be a sacrifice, but has given his only begotten Son to us just as Joachim and our patroness Anna gave their only begotten daughter into the service of God, into the service of the temple, so that she might bear God into the world. You've so loved the world as to give your only begotten Son that all him that believe in him should not perish, not be annihilated, 
that would not just evaporate from existence, but be eternal, have eternal life. When he had come and fulfilled the whole dispensation for us. Technical language. What it means is that when Jesus came and became a human being, that wonderful feast that we're waiting on, the feast of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of God as Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and fulfilled the whole dispensation, the idea of a dispensation is a plan. This is a plan that has been going on since Adam and Eve, since the gates of paradise were closed and the people of God put into his creation for their salvation. <coughs> God has sent the prophets and done many things to show himself to us, not least giving us the civilizing uh, uh, Old Testament commandments. When he had fulfilled all that dispensation, right the way through history, ending in God becoming incarnate as Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was given up, and then the apostles, in writing this, almost, you can almost see them saying, I've written this now, so I'm going to leave it, but I want to add something to this. I don't want to scrub that out. Because in the night in which he was given up, or rather gave himself up for the life of the world. You can imagine the person scribing this going, yeah, well, I'm not going to scrub that first bit out because that was good. But we've got something better here. Not that Jesus was given up by us, but rather he gave himself up for the life of the world. He took, what did he take in his pure and blameless <coughs> hands? He took something very simple, something so common, so ordinary, that we just chuck it away without thinking about it. We buy it as cheaply as possible. We don't even bother making it these days. But he takes some bread in his pure, holy and blameless hands. And he gives thanks. God gives thanks for his own creation. He gives thanks, sanctifies it by breathing on it, and breaks it. And he gives it to his holy disciples and apostles and says something that is both now and in the future, and that which has always been. Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you for the remission of your sins, for the cleansing of your sins. Take, eat, this is my body. It is Jesus Christ's body, but it's a piece of bread. So you can see the paradox here that Jesus is showing you a piece of bread and saying, this is my body. But he's also saying, remember what I've said about that bread, it's taken from the very creation. It's taken from the earth, it's taken from the water, it's taken from the sun. He is saying, I am the bread of life. Not in a metaphysical sense, but in a real sense as well. Take it, eat it, this is me. I have been broken for you, that you might be cleansed of all your selfishness, all of your hurt, and be made whole. And the same way, at the end of the supper, he took, takes a cup of wine and says again, Drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant. Not the blood of the old covenant that never washed away sins. Always, every year, had to be represented and represented for the suffering of the people and the ignorances of the people. But this is a blood of the new covenant, the end of all blood, 
such that later on in the Divine Liturgy we say this bloodless sacrifice, this reasonable, reason-endowed sacrifice that has no blood in it. We are not cutting lambs. We are not sacrificing animals to assuage the anger of a wrathful God, but we are giving thanks. We are offering a gift back. Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. <clears throat> Finally, forever, wiping away all sin. And the priest says quietly, after having said that aloud, and you all say, Amen. In other words, make it so, to coin a TV phrase. The priest says, remember it, bringing to remind. My priest, when I was a teenager, before, just before I got married, and the priest who married us, Father Chris, always talked to me about this idea in the English language, the remembering of things. Not just intellectual remembering, but the physical members of the church, your body, bits of your body are called the members of your body, your arms and legs. And if you're broken and those are brought together, they are remembered. And the broken parts of the body of Christ, you, come together in a single organic unity of the body of Christ. You are remembered. Your members are brought together again in one. Remembering, therefore, this saving commandment and all those things have come to pass for us, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming. I'm switching for a moment to the same prayer in the liturgy of St. Basil. And if you've got another hour or so, I can talk you through the detail of the liturgy of St. Basil. But there's something here that he's quite startling. Before this point at the remembering therefore the saving commandment, the writer of St. Basil's liturgy, which is the longer version of St. John Chrysostom, we say it during Lent, primarily. St. John Chrysostom edits it down because we're not very good at concentrating for a very long time. So if you think divine liturgy is long now, then wait until Lent. And as memorials of this saving passion, this uh, uh, institution narrative, St. Basil says, as a remembrance of his saving passion, he has left us these things which we have set forth according to his command. The switch in the language, which is all passive up until that point, should slap us around the face a little bit. Because up until that point, the writer is speaking in the third person. It is not possible, so he became the first fruits of the dead, that he might himself, he sat down, it's describing a history. And then suddenly there was a switch. And as memorials of his saving passion, he has left us these things, which we have set forth according to his command. You can hear the apostles speaking to you. This is the apostle saying, he left us these things. This is not just dry history. These are the apostles speaking directly to you and saying to you, don't throw these things away. Don't chuck them away and invent something new because these are the things that he has left us and we pass them on as closely as we possibly can to the original. Bearing in mind we're in different places and different times and different languages and cultures. But nonetheless, at this point in the divine liturgy, we are literally doing that which the apostles have given to us. We take the gift that they received 
to know Jesus Christ, to have met God face to face. And they pass that on to us so that we too may face God face to face. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>